18. Initial thought was to go to verse 30, but I think I'm going to stop at verse 22. This is a, an important passage in regards to self-awareness and self-identity, I suppose, because one of the toughest sins for mankind to overcome is that of self-righteousness. If you ask most people, what are the requirements to go to heaven, or what is the default position if you die, and they will tell you uh, it's heaven, and the requirements to get there is that you're a good person, and that's not what the Bible teaches, and it's really tough for a lot of people to accept that as truth. Um, we grow up with this understanding that, Johnny, if you're a good little boy, then you're going to be rewarded for it. You want the candy bar? Then you better behave. You know, that kind of a thing. So if you do good, you're rewarded. So we expect if we do these good deeds and live a good life, then, ex well, of course, we'll just go to heaven. And that's the default position. But as we know, mankind cannot be redeemed by keeping the law. You can't keep a set of rules or keep the church traditions. What happens is, and it's a natural thing, is that you use the law or your rule setting to measure your own righteousness. You know, if I keep the rules, then I'm justified, and of course God would accept me. If I fail to keep the rules, then well, then I'm on my way to hell. You know, it's just, it's one or the other type of a thing. And so we have, we have grown up, naturally speaking, with this performance-based relationship uh, with God in our minds. And I can tell you now from Scripture, that's not what the Lord had in mind when he created mankind, to have that kind of works relationship with him. He wants to have a personal relationship it's like husband and wife. You, you know, it's not based on works, it's based on love. You do things for one another because you love each other. Not to earn favor, but because you love the other person. He wants all of mankind to be part of his eternal family as sons and daughters. And he desires to adopt us back into his family because naturally we were separated from him at birth. Now, some of this is very basic. You've heard it before. Some of you have heard it, but it's not resonated with you. You've not yet taken it in and made it your own. God wants to adopt us into his family because we have been separated by him at birth. We have a fallen nature. We must be born of the Spirit in order to regain what was forfeited by the disobedience of our first parents there in the Garden of Eden. It was their disobedience that brought death to the human family. You know, they didn't die immediately. You know, Eve ate the fruit and didn't croak, right? <laughs> she didn't just fall over. She continued to breathe, but something changed. She enticed her husband and he ate, and then they knew they were naked. Something happened. The physical became the leading, driving force within their life, and the spirit man within them died. So they hid themselves from the presence of God. And that's what mankind does naturally. We run and hide in the bushes because of our guilt. And so Jesus told us in order for that to be restored, we must be born again. 
you cannot be justified. Your spirit cannot be made alive by keeping the law. Go ahead and keep your rules. Go ahead and keep your church traditions. Do you think that will cause your spirit to become revived and alive again? I think not. We're born again. Our spirit is made alive because we completely surrender to God and we confess that we have a sinful nature and that we are hiders within the bushes, right? And we're willing to accept the fact that we're self-righteous and we see ourselves in a better light than we really are. We must be born again. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Most assuredly, that means without a doubt, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? This is John 3, verses 3 through 7. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you do hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from nor where it goes. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. So when we ask the Lord for forgiveness of our sins in sincerity, we receive that forgiveness. We're also given new birth. Our spirit is made alive as we repent and we turn to him in complete surrender. It doesn't really matter the particular words you pray in doing this. It's what you do. It's the attitude of our inner man that counts. God is looking upon the heart of each one. That's something that you cannot see or I cannot see of one another. Think about the thief on the cross. Did he, did he pray the sinner's prayer? No. But there was three things that I think that are evident there that revealed uh, his state of being on the cross next to Jesus. He realizes he realized that he was a sinner. I think that's fair to say. He needed forgiveness. And I think he realized as we have reread the text that Jesus was an innocent man and he was who he was accused of being, the king of the Jews, the savior. And what did he do? All he asked for was, Lord, remember me when you come into the kingdom. You see, some things are unsaid, but they're understood. And God looks upon the heart, and that's important. Because Jesus responded to him. We know he was saved. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. And we're taught that being, uh, and what we are being taught by the word of God is the abiding, by the abiding presence of the Spirit, is that the law itself was based in love. It's not about just a bunch of rules to make God happy, but this is how you act and respond to your neighbor, to your friend, to other people. This is how you respond and act and behave yourself towards God. 
how to love God, how to offend, keep from offending a holy God. This is what the law contains. It provided those instructions so that you could enter into the presence. That's what it was all about. Yahweh coming into the midst of Israel's camp, abiding in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. It was holy, sacred space. If you're going to come into that space, these are the rules. If you violate those rules because God is holy and just and right and you are not, you will die in his presence. So in his mercy, he lined out the various rules, as it were, the laws by which Israel was to conduct themselves. The law was never given to create or empower us to self-justify. And how many people do that? It's really easy to do. God's desires for us to, him to dwell with us. God's desires, Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to do this in the future. It's coming, and it's coming a lot faster than most people realize. There's a lot more days behind us than there are in front of us in regards to the coming of the kingdom, would you not say? And I don't know about you, but I want to be ready. You see, man's rebellion created a blockade, an impasse, impossible for you and I to transverse. And so God in his great love created a bridge between heaven and earth. It was the cross of Christ. That's what straddled the gap so that you and I could now have communion with the holy God. It doesn't, no amount of good deeds are able to transverse that gap between heaven and earth. It is faith only. It is trust only. It is re- only relying on him and clinging to the living God that empowers us to become the children of God. John 1.12 But as many has received him, to them he gave the power or the right to become the children of God. To those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so... We're going to look at this passage here about the, the certain ruler. And we're going to look at the passages that are in Matthew. We're going to look at the passages that is in Mark. And you'll see that there's differences in the account. And by putting all the accounts together, you get a, a full composition of this young, rich young ruler. Uh, Matthew 19, you're welcome to look there. Uh, he, he, he stresses the youth, the young man that had wealth. Mark 10 speaks of his wealth. And here we have him being a ruler. So uh, he's rich, he's young, and he's in charge. Well, what more could you possibly want, <laughs> right? So let's go to Matthew 19. And read the text concerning Matthew nineteen sixteen. Matthew nineteen sixteen. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God, that is but one, that is God. 
But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now let's flip over to Mark 10 and pick it up in verse 17. Now he was, he was going out on the road. One came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come. Take up the the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And now uh, our text here in Luke 18, verse 18. And now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. So all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he was, became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And so we see the subtle differences there, generally the same. But one of the things you can notice is that Jesus referred to the second table of the law. These I have kept from my youth. Did he really? I don't know about you, but I don't know. I've yet to meet anybody that's never had a squabble with another human being. Maybe they didn't live long enough for that to happen. I'm not sure. Um, That's just one thing. I think, what is Jesus after there? Is he wanting him to reflect upon the personal relationships? I mean, actually, how many people did he have to step on to climb over to become the rich young ruler that he became? I don't know. Maybe that's what Jesus was after. Why he referred to the law, we'll get into that a little bit later. But Mark tells us that he came running and he knelt down. I find that quite interesting. Perhaps he was devout and he was eager to serve the Lord. Luke's, again, a little bit different. We find out that he actually is one of the rulers. And this is, uh, he's met Jesus there on the road. 
Well, let's break this down a little bit and unpack it a little bit. Why do you call me good? Or why are you asking uh, this like this? You know, is it, you know, only God is good. We don't sure why the emphasis is on that, but Jesus sets him straight. Only God is good. Does he recognize Jesus as God? I don't know that that's there. But he's asking about good deeds. Notice the personal pronouns that are used here. What shall I do? What good thing shall I do? It's all on him. But notice again, Jesus is classic at this. He always asks questions. That kind of helps him to sort of discover what the other person really is asking and sort of get a little more maybe accurate information. Um, but I also think he asks questions because he wants to prompt people to think. It's very easy for you and I to become intellectually lazy and not really think about what we're asking or, or what it may imply. God knows what's best and the best way for us to learn. And so questions obviously are a good way for us to, uh, to be challenged in thinking. And I think he's wanting, again, this man to think differently than he has been thinking because, after all, he's the one coming. If he's kept the law and he's, fought, and he's got everything going for him, he's rich, he's young, and in charge, why is he running to Jesus? Why is he humbling himself before Jesus? Because he knows there's something in his life that isn't quite right. He has been relating to God on this works-based, performance-based idea. And there's something missing from his life. This is something that people have to admit that think they can get to heaven on the basis of righteousness. Why am I still empty? That should be a clue that there's something not quite congruent in your heart and right with God. And so... It's good that people be challenged. Everyone sitting in this room and those listening by way of the internet, are you sure of your salvation? If you close your eyes for the last time, are you sure that your name is written in the book of life? Are you trusting in all the good deeds and that you're a moral person, and you always seem to try to do the right thing. Oh, yeah, you might slip up a little bit here and there, but overall, you're a good person. Now, if you've been listening at all, you understand that what the Bible teaches, that's not sufficient. You must be born again. You must be born again. It's not what good thing shall I do, or what can I do to inherit eternal life. It's not by works. It's by faith in a person. Like, which commandments? Are there other commandments that I should keep? Well, you haven't, you know, according to, I think, what was said here, I don't think he got by the second table of the law. Let's not get into the idolatry, because this guy's problem was... <laughs> you didn't, but you, I'll help you. See, there are standards that we can set or see... And we understand that they're achievable, at least in our minds to some degree. And we can achieve them in our natural state. 
But in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, we do not keep them perfectly. See, when it comes to eternal life, we don't set the standard. God does. And aren't you glad that Jesus set the standard? You just must believe on him whom God has sent. This is what was declared in John's gospel. What must we do to do the works of God? This is what the people wanted to know. Because the Pharisees were laying some heavy things on them. And as Jesus said, would not lift with one of their fingers to do any of the things that they commanded the people to do. And so they would lay these heavy burdens upon the people. The law is a heavy burden. Self-righteousness is a heavy burden that we are not meant to bear. What do I lack? You see, he's empty. He's self-righteous and he's empty. Why did he come running to Jesus? Because Jesus had something going on that he, no one had ever seen before. Nobody ever raised the dead. Now, by this time in the ministry, dead have been raised, miracle after miracle after miracle. This is the downside. He's headed to Jerusalem to the Passover, and it's going to be the end of his earthly ministry. So all these things have been taking place. This rich young ruler was well aware of Jesus' ministry. I'm sure he heard of what happened on the, the boat when he calmed the storm. I mean, Jesus has some inside track to God. He has something that I don't have, and I need to find out what he knows that I don't know so I can have what he has or seems to have. I want eternal life. He's been talking about that, and I want to know that for sure that I have that. A lot going on inside that young man's heart as well it should be. I mean, what more could a guy want? I mean, rich, young, and in charge. And see, that's what we're all about in our culture, is it not? In the eyes of the world, he's arrived. It doesn't get better than this. Usually when you're in charge, you're an older person. And when you have wealth, you're an older person because sometimes it just takes a lifetime to accumulate wealth. Well, he's got it, and he's got his youth, which is desired by many and possessed by few, right? <laughs> you know, he could secure earthly riches, but he had no understanding on how to secure the heavenly riches and eternal security. And Jesus warned about this. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things possessed. So eternal life, as we have learned as Christians, is more than just living forever. When you bend your knee and surrender your heart and complete obedience to Christ, that is the first day you begin to experience eternal life. God's life begins to flow in and through your being. It's a wonderful thing. Life from God himself. It's the most fulfilling thing that a person can experience to be born again and to walk with God in the Spirit. There's nothing on this planet that can ever substitute for the gift that's been offered and given to us in the person of Jesus Christ.
You and I stand before God, guilt-free. God has cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west. They have been removed from us. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. The self-righteous person cannot do that, cannot say that, does not have that kind of peace because works cannot remove guilt. Only the blood of Christ can remove the guilt. Keeping the law outwardly does not justify one before God. Only simple faith. Abraham, before the law ever came around, we're taught salvation in the Old Testament is by grace and grace alone. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith, not by his works. So, rich young man viewed Jesus as a good teacher. He thought he could merit salvation by being good. And so I think that's why Jesus picked up the emphasis on good. What good works must I do? You know, he just kept pounding that and driving that home. So Like the rich young ruler, how many people do you know that when you begin to share the gospel and they bring that back to you, I'm a good person. Now you know when that happens that they have not had a real close self-evaluation. They're not being honest with themselves and they've just locked themselves into being self-righteous. You see, well, why? How does that happen? Well, for him, that's exactly what the establishment had been teaching. And this is the problem I find in the churches today. If you're not teaching the grace of God, what are you teaching? Church attendance? Tithe giving? Rule keeping? Church tradition? What is the list? It's kind of an endless list, of, but it, it, that's not what the Bible talks about as far as receiving justification. See, the establishment taught him that all that matters is outward conformity. It's what people see that matters. We've got to keep this thing going so we have to make it look good. Transparency, what's that? Right? He came running to Jesus because he was missing something and he knew it. He humbled himself, but he didn't like the message he received. You want to you do something, something good to, an inter, to inherit eternal life? You had to do one thing. Really, was to come and follow Jesus. Because if you are following Jesus and you're worshiping the true and living God, the stuff becomes secondary. It becomes irrelevant because you realize you are, as the scripture says, your grass, and you're going to get mowed in the end. We all die. It sprouts, it flourishes, and then it withers, and it's gone. And I find it a marvel how we can be so easily blinded by materialism. Somehow, heaping all this stuff up just to leave it to somebody else. And we don't begin to measure our time very well. The Bible 
tells us to number our days, not our years. And when we think about that, life expectancy of 70, if by reason of strength, 80. What if it's less than that? Rarely does people live over 100, right? What are any of those days or any of those years compared to eternity? And yet, what will a man give in exchange for eternal life? It's just absolutely the craziest thing. It makes no sense that these things and what I gain in this earth are more important than my eternal destiny. And so they begin to lie to themselves. Well, after you die, it's over. You just cease to exist. And that's just another big lie. You see, people have to learn to accept the truth. And if they really would accept the truth about themselves and about what God has said about them and about his love and grace, they would repent. They would turn. So the responsibility lies upon you and I to tell them the truth in love and be gracious. When Jesus dealt with this man, you'll notice that he was self-righteous. Look, I, I got this, to, I've been doing this since I was a little boy. That's, you know, that's, so how did Jesus minister to him? He took him to the law because the law is there to show the standard of God and if you're reading it with any sort of just minuscule amount of self-evaluation, you realize you're guilty because everybody's lied, everybody's taken something that didn't belong to him, etc. And if you So the self-righteous people, you have to bring the law. You really keep the Ten Commandments? You really have kept all the commandments? Well, I know. So what are you going to do with that sin, right? But how did people handle, Jesus handled people that were really messed up? You know, the Bible calls them a broken reed, a bruised reed, or a smoking flax. How does, how does, how does Jesus deal with the down-and-outers? The homeless, the empty. He, he offers grace and mercy. Jesus didn't kick anybody when they were down. He, his attitude has always been and always will be to heal and restore. But we have to understand there is a good purpose of the law. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 12 tells us, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity by commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking the occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law, law is holy, and the commandment is holy, just, and good. So there's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. It's all about fallen human nature that cannot keep the law in perfection. And you read and understand the law, it'll break you down. So where do good works come in then? Good works are critical to God's blessing. 
It's an outflow of what you believe. I have good works because it's an outflow of what God has put in my heart to do. It isn't for salvation. It's because I have received salvation. Ephesians 2.8, for grace by grace you have been saved, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So what was the evidence for the Israelite in keeping, uh, demonstrating as it were their faith if it wasn't keeping the law? Well, they were to keep the law by faith, but they knew in their conscience if they crossed the line, entered into sacred space, and were unclean or unholy, they, in obedience to what God said to do, which is an act of faith, that's how it was demonstrated for them. It wasn't because they kept the law perfectly. It's so important. These are subtle little things that happen in the mind and heart that the self-righteous person can easily overlook. You know, if they offended their neighbor, they'd have to make restitution. It was pretty obvious what they had to, to do. But they understood that forgiveness came through the blood and through a, the atoning sacrifices. To just, Clay Turner, Tanner rather, has an interesting quote. And I, I, I'm going to read it to you because I think he um, puts it uh, together pretty well for us. Works, good deeds are the physical response and demonstration of an inner set of beliefs and system of values based upon those beliefs that are both stimulated into being by those beliefs and are also seen and experienced evidence of those unseen beliefs and values. So if I have true faith, which you cannot see, it will be made manifest by what I do and how I am acting in my life. So you can tell me you believe all you want while the devil believes and the demons believe in God. That's not the point. If you have true faith, there's going to be fruit and there's going to be evidence of your salvation. And that's what the Bible teaches. So it's not about what good thing I should do. It's, it's about the good person that I have faith in, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He went away, and this is so sad. And I, I'm sure you have witnessed the people, and you've told them the truth in love, and they've not accepted Christ. And you walked away feeling, if I would have just said it this way, I knew I should have, oh, I left that out. Oh, and you feel guilty, you feel bad because you didn't present the gospel perfectly to them or in your mind you think that. Well, I don't think that's usually the issue. I mean, think the enemy would like us to think that way so it would discourage us from ever doing it again, <laughs> right? I mean, let's get, you know, pay attention here. First of all, most of us know, if we're honest with ourselves, we are sinners, <laughs> So when you present the gospel to someone, there's a conviction automatically. The Holy Spirit we know is upon them, dealing with them. And he's going to use your words and what you present to them. And if they reject it, that's not on you. It's not on me. Jesus was saddened by the fact that this guy uh, 
turned away. And this guy was only sad because he was not willing to give up his position. See, he was all worried about what people thought and what he had. And that was worth more to him than eternal life. Did he really want eternal life? See, he, he, he was finding his security in this earth. Oh my. If you're finding your security in what you possess, you're to be pitied. Of <laughs> This stuff is fleeting. It is but for a moment. What, is, what does the Bible say of wealth? It makes wings of a burden. Flies away. It's here. It's gone. We all know that week to week, right? <laughs> Just like, where'd it go? Wait. <laughs> I thought I had. No, it's gone. Ah. <laughs> he gave up on what he could not see to keep what he can't, could see. And it's really a sad day. I think of Jim Elliott on October 28, 1949, a missionary in South America wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gains what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And this was not in the heart of that young man, but that's what it's about. You got to understand you're not taking anything with you. You're only taking your testimony your works will follow you. They will speak of you, your character on the other side. What good thing, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Follow Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the good thing. You can't improve on that. There's no greater deed that you could do or pull off. No more magnificent thing to do. Just follow Jesus, that's the greatest. Notice how Jesus, and this is a, this is a word to us as, as witnesses, Jesus looking at him, loved him. He wasn't harsh. He wasn't condemning him for being self-righteous. He wasn't condemning him because he was wealthy or young. <laughs> He looked at him and he loved him. Now whether he asked what he lacked or whether Jesus told him, it doesn't really matter. The result is the same. Here's what you need to do. How many people want to store their treasure in heaven? I hope you say I do. You see, we don't know who we are until we follow Jesus. This guy didn't know who he was. In reality, he was trying to find out who he was and what his life was all about. I, I thought it was being a, a rich person. I thought wealth would be fulfilling for me. I thought being a, in a position of authority and telling everybody else what to do would be fulfilling for me. You know, fame and power, riches, it doesn't fulfill the need at all. It's, all about, it's not about status. Not about that at all. It's not about what other people notice. Because really, in reality, you don't care about other people and they don't care about you. That's the harsh reality. We're selfish human beings. The only thing that can change that in the heart of a person is the love of God. And he puts that in there for us. To really love one another. To lay down our lives for one another.
You see, Jesus was the trailblazer. He's the one that charted the course for you and for me. He's the one who came so you and I could have abundant life. Now, that's not talking about materialism. I do believe God blesses his people. Why not? He loves them. He's not going to bless us with something that's going to destroy us, though, because his love is too great. A lot of people that love the Lord have been given a lot of wealth, and that's, that's, God, that's, that's up to God. If riches increase in your life, as the Bible says, don't set your heart on them. It says it twice. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. He is the trailblazer. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. That's how we find our identity. Follow the way. Get to know the truth. Understand what eternal life is all about. It is coming to know the true and living God. That's how you find out who you are. The more you know God, the more you're going to know who you are and where you fit in his kingdom and the role he has for you to play and the works that he has for you to do, not for your salvation, but for his glory and for his honor. You don't want to end up walking away. And I say this to those who may be listening on the internet. Do not walk away from the truth. Do not remain in your self-righteousness. You need to turn to God and you need to trust Him. Trust Him and Him alone. There may be someone here that's playing church. There may be, you've been going to church for a long time and you think maybe, you know, you're going to slide in through the pearly gates because of your church attendance. That's not going to cut it. You've got to humble yourself as a child. We learned that last week. We have to be honest with ourselves before God. And so we're going to close here. So the team's going to come up and they're going to play. Let's all stand. You've been sitting so patiently. I just want to challenge each and every one of us to just simply be honest in your heart with yourself. Am I really right with God? I, I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't challenge you in this. For someone to reject the word of God, to reject the way, the truth, and the life, because you're worried about your earthly wealth is a very sad thing indeed. As you, as we sing and as we pray, contemplate within your own heart, where am I with God? Am I resisting him? Or am I deeply in love with him and I am so thankful for all that he does for me? Yes, I got my hangups, but I know God loves me and I'm trying to overcome day by day. That's the kind of heart you want. And if you don't have that kind of heart, then pray that God gives you one. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray that your spirit would just move in the heart of every person. Lord, you know. You know exactly where each and every person resides. As the scripture says, you know our downsetting. You know our uprising. You know our thoughts before we ever think them. 
And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would do a search within every heart, that you would bring each and every one of us, Lord, to that place of complete surrender and trust and faith in you to receive the gifts, the gift of eternal life and the abundant living that you've promised to us as your children. Bless your people now. In Jesus' name, amen.